Dr. Eastman is ordained in the Episcopal Church, and she served churches from New York to Alaska. I really want to hear more stories about Alaska and planes and parishes, um, because I remember you mentioned that in New Testament, not just that's hopping on a little jumper plane. But anyways, um, uh, see if I can work it in. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Great. Um, question spirit. Yeah. Um, uh, she'll also be participating in an event in two weeks that I want to draw your attention to. We're having a roundtable symposium entitled Taking Our Meds Faithfully, Christian Engagements with Psychiatric Medication. Dr. Eastman will be one of uh, several presenters. We'll also have um, Jeffrey Bishop, uh, Therese Lysalt, John Swinton, our own Warren Kinghorn, and Ryan Lawrence from Columbia University will all be presenting. This will be Friday, March 3rd. It's a joy to be in conversation together, particularly with Dr. Eastman today. Her talk is entitled, Paul's Anthropology and the Care of the Person. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Eastman. Well, thank you all so much. Um, it's a real pleasure to be back here. Uh, I love coming to these things, but my, my schedule doesn't usually make it possible. But um, I've really valued what I've learned with the TMC fellows um, in past years. And wish I could be more involved this year, but it's a pleasure to be here now. Um, so, what I'm going to talk about today is primarily the body, Paul and the body, Paul's body language, but I'll, I thought I'd recap a little bit. Some of you may have heard last, I think some of you were there, last fall I gave a talk for the Neurohumanities group on Paul's anthropology, and I'm going to recap a, a few of those ideas uh, just to make a connection, but I didn't want to do the same thing over again. But what I talked about in that session was Paul's idea, Paul's anthropology, Paul's notion of the person as a self in relation, which is a, a, a way of speaking that happens among experimental psychologists sometimes. I could name a few. I talked about last time Peter Hobson is one who coins this term. Uh, Vasudevi Reddy is another. People who look at how in infant development, the, uh, the relational link between self and other is constitutive for development of, of personhood. And, um, but I talked about this in Paul because in Paul it's also the case that I argued the self, and there is a self, I think, in Paul. It's not an either-or between only communal identity or only purely individual identity. But the self is never on its own. The self is always a self in relation to external realities that also operate internally. And I talked about this in relationship to two key Pauline texts for those in the MAX program. One's from Romans, one's from Galatians. In Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live in the faith, which is of the Son of God. I guess you talked about that. Is that right? We did. That's good. We can talk about that more if you want. Um, but in so there's an I, yet not I, but another living in me, and yet I still live. Very paradoxical language. And then in Romans 7, another very thorny, difficult text in Paul, he says, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer me doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And he says it twice. So he talks about sin as this indwelling thing that is acting in and through the self, which is acting and yet 
not acting because some other external yet internal agent is acting. So this is a very interesting way to talk about human identity as, as um, and personhood as an I, yet not I, but another, as, as um, always in relationship and yet still an agent, an agent that acts but never on his or her own, an agent that acts but is not autonomous in the way that post-Cartesian modern notions of individual as individualism think, as an autonomous, self-determining, freestanding, discrete agent. That idea is not in Paul, and it's not much, well, it is and isn't in the ancient world. That's another big topic, and we can talk about that if you want, but in other philosophical constructs of the person. But for Paul, the self is a self in relation. So, to, and I noted some similarities between that and some current work in experimental psychology. Today, I want to talk about that self in relation as mediated through the body. The body as a relational matrix, so to speak, or a relational system. Um, and so, the unofficial title of this, wait, no, how do I make this work? Our bodies, ourselves. Anybody old enough to remember this book? You remember it. <laughs> We're probably about the same age. It came out in the late 60s, um, and it, it grew out of conversations among, among women aged 23 to 36 at Emanuel College in Boston, Mass. And at, that, at the time, it was a radical book, a book by and for women. What a concept. And it was basically a women's health manual. And the idea was that women's health is different from men's health. This was a radical idea at the time. <laughs> it's really something. And it, oh, it appeared through all in my college years in the 70s and et cetera. It was all over the place. And um, that models of health based solely on men's bodies were problematic. And it had a lot of explicit photographs. And um, it was kind of radical. It's, not radical now, but it was radical then. Well, I'm not really talking particularly about that, but the notion there was that um, the body and the self are together. Our bodies, ourselves, cannot be split. Um, and that is what really interests me, and that's why I'm saying this is, in a way, what Paul's understanding of the body is like, that the body and the self are not divisible. Uh, that you can't have something happen to the body, you can't have a distinction between the body and the self such that you could do stuff with or to the body and leave the self intact. This has implications for how Paul talks about sex, how Paul talks about food, how Paul talks about um, uh, idolatry, uh, lots of things. You cannot do something with and to the body and leave the self intact. <clears throat> so uh, what that raises for me then is the question of the relationship between bodies and identity, which is always at issue in medical contexts where bodies are doing things and having things done to them. And so the identity of the self, the person in the body in a clinical setting is always seems to be at risk often. Um, so what does Paul have to
to say about this. I'm going to make two claims. Let me see if I do this right. Yeah. I'm going to say that for Paul, our <coughs> physical body, our flesh, what we call our flesh, or our physical body, is a little bit different than Paul's use of the term flesh, by the way. Um, we can talk about that. But our physical body, his word is soma, the Greek word is soma, is not a barrier but a bridge. Uh, bodies don't separate us, they connect us. They are not boundaries. They're porous, they're permeable. Skin is porous and permeable. It is through our skins that we are have a constant, and through our, our nervous systems in contemporary terms, Paul didn't know that, we have a constant traffic of exchange between external and internal, generally speaking. This medium of exchange means that as bodies we are always in a mode of belonging. Uh, we are not discrete entities. And that means that we're incredibly vulnerable as bodily embodied beings. And it also means that as bodies we are social beings. We are connected. So to be a body for Paul is to be socially embedded in um, a larger relational matrix for good and for ill. It is necessary for life, connection, but it also makes us extremely vulnerable to toxic powers and influences. And we'll see how Paul talks about this, which is different and may seem foreign to contemporary contexts. But we have this basic idea. Both, and we might think about those toxic uh, powers both relationally and also in terms of just physical components. And the second claim is that Christ took on human flesh. It's a basic claim in Christianity, the claim of the incarnation, but we find it in Paul in the most marginalized and despised way, in a body that became abhorrent to his culture as a slave and a crucified criminal. And in so doing, I will say he validates the worth of every human body, including and perhaps especially the bodies of those whom society deems worthless. So I'm going to expand on both of these things. I want to say up front that um, one of the dangers in this way of talking um, and I think that within Christian theology we have a counter to this danger. But the danger in this emphasis on connection and relationship is that personhood gets defined as relationality. And in some contemporary work in philosophy of the person, philosophy of mind, this is what we find happening. Personhood defined as relationality. It used to be defined as rationality. A lot of definitions of what makes human beings special or persons. Um, but actually what we find in Paul is personhood is defined in terms of those whose form Christ took, whose bodily form Christ took. And that's more than relationality. It's not quite just the same as relationality. That becomes very important um, in some limit cases of personhood. So We'll talk a little bit more about all of this. So, yeah. So this is, uh, I like this. This is from a, um, can you all see it up there? It's, it's a wonderful sculpture. It's a medieval sculpture. It's quite large, like this. And it's um, of, it's called The Education of a Virgin. I saw it 
at a um, museum <coughs> up in Montreal. And there's Mary, the beautiful young woman with hair flowing down her back. And there's her mother, Anne, uh, who's in a wimple, because this is <laughs> a medieval <laughs> carving. And it's the education of Mary, which I find just quite remarkable. It's a medieval carving, and we don't think of medieval women being educated and educating, but this is happening within the church. And um, it's a full scale. The whole bodies of both of them are in the carving. They're sitting at a table facing each other. They've got a Bible open. And they're gesturing back and forth, face-to-face exchange. This is a picture of personhood here. It's a picture that is um, a classical picture. It's a picture classical for Christian anthropology in which the bodily gesture itself is a medium of communication and connection, in which uh, gesture itself, which um, I mentioned this in the talk last time, a lot of studies going on now about gesture and gesture as a medium of communication, in which its purpose seems to be not simply to get something done, but to to form a connection. Uh, And so this is going on here. And eye contact is going on. Um, And here this picture is we may feel we're isolated, alone in a room, a rock, an island, but by virtue of being bodies, here we find this connection going on and this relational shaping going on. It's very different than some contemporary pictures. This is another painting that I saw, a work of art I saw up in Montreal. And it's uh, a brain. It's a big brain, <laughs> and um, you can't really see, but down in the bottom there, there, in that little screen, there's a little video screen, and it's a picture, videos of human beings walking around and relating to each other. But the dominating picture is this physical human brain, and it was painted by a, an artist who got really fascinated by things going on in neuroscience right now, and thought, oh, the brain is the key to who we are to human consciousness, to everything about us. There's some people who are jumping on this bandwagon. But it's a brain that is disembodied. I call this kind of a misembodiment. And it's um, disembedded from relationship. And it's as if this idea that this purely physical body study can get at the mysteries of human personhood has no way to capture the mystery of this young woman who's walking in front of it, looking at the picture, and then looking at me as I take her picture. (laughs) There's the mystery of the person that far exceeds the brain on the wall. Okay. So because Jeff is here, I want to say a disclaimer here. You know, um, Autism is often seen as the other to all this way of talking. We were just talking about that. Autism, the very nation, the very name of it is, seems to be the person alone. And, and the, the, there are things in the autistic's body that seem to not mediate relationship. Am I, am I right on this? Which is somewhat understood and somewhat not. And yet, at least in my uh, readings, I've read um, when, when, when we have communicative autistics, what they talk about is bodily connection with often their mother, some, somebody whose bodily connection begins to, meet, begins to be a, 
a relational way of meeting their, mediating their access to their own bodies so they can, can begin to communicate. And so in a sense, autistics actually illustrate this even more because I think for Paul, our access to ourself is mediated through others. We are in relationship first and we ourselves second. And if our access to ourselves even, our, our self-knowledge is mediated through something other than ourselves, for good or for ill, then actually when communicative autistics talk about how, I'm thinking of various folks I've read, some have been here, Tito Mukopaja, he says his mother's touch helped him have the neurological awareness of his own breathing patterns so he could begin to learn to speak. His mother's touch creates an environment in which he is, this is his language, able to begin to have the capacity to use his body to communicate. I think that's really beautiful. Uh, so actually, um, I think this model of personhood in which we are relationally constituted from the ground up and our bodies have a role in that actually works in really interesting ways in all kinds of situations that might seem to be the exception to the rule. In fact, they're not. Um, a lot of the studies of some of these exceptions want people to be like us. <laughs> and we're the norm. Neurotypicals or whatever are the norm. And if people don't fit that norm, then they are somehow outside of the bounds. But I think Paul gives us a different way of understanding relational identity. So. A little, that was a little side, <coughs> uh, side focus. Okay, so Paul uses the term soma, body, all over the place, lots and lots of places. And he uses it to refer to physical human bodies, and he uses it to refer to corporate, um, social, and more than social bodies, metaphysical bodies almost. So let me... Uh, Move on to that. Yeah, so I've, I've put a few key quotes up here. What I want to note is that Paul never speaks of the body in isolation. The body is always qualified grammatically in relationship to something else. Soma doesn't exist on its own. It's a soma of something, this way or that way, which then defines it. So here are some examples uh, of this language of soma or body. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's Romans 7, all you scholars. Or who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7 again. Or we know this, that our old self was co-crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be done away with, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Or, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay, in each of these verses, the word body is defined by its relationship to something else. Very different things, however. And in Greek, this is a genitive construction, the something of something, which can be translated in quite a variety of ways, as it can in English, of so it can mean the body that originates in sin or death or in Christ. That's called an authorial genitive. Or it can mean 
the human body, the human body, and the mode of belonging to sin or death or Christ. The body that belongs to sin or that belongs to death, belongs to Christ. Or perhaps, but this is less likely, there are other ways to say it, sometimes it's translated as a sinful body or a mortal body or a Christian body, but I think that's less persuasive for a variety of reasons. Or it could mean that it is sin's body, or Christ's body, or death's body, and a personified notion of sin and death, and of course, Christ. So you have to take each one case by case. Are you with me on this? Just a little grammar here. So in Romans 7, 4, the top one, the body of Christ. Well, in the context, in the first instance, it most likely refers to Christ's own physical body, crucified for all humanity. You know, this notion that we have died to sin, died to the law through the body of Christ. Christ's action, Christ's physical incarnate death on the cross is that into which human beings are caught up so that we also, in some sense, die. That's a basic, basic to the logic of the gospel. But it's a really bizarre logic. It does not work if you have, as philosophy and theology have had for some time an individualistic freestanding notion of the self. How can you say that this action, this event of a human body crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago has an effect on people now? It makes no sense. It does not fit the logic of modernist individualistic notions of the self. But Paul's logic seems to be different. He seems to have a different underlying logic, which means a different underlying anthropology. It requires a logic of solidarity between one body and another across time and space. It's kind of like Paul has a butterfly effect, understanding, of, you know, that, that one effect here in time and space can have an effect elsewhere in time and space. But, of course, that's mediated by God, who is the divine spirit who crosses time and space. I mean, that's what you have to have. And so we still have solidarity somehow this way through. We participate in Christ's crucifixion, which in turn delivers us from what Paul calls, next line, the body of sin. So what is the body of sin? Is it a sinful human body? That's often a misunderstanding of Paul, as if bodies per se are sinful. It just doesn't quite fit his grammar. But that's how we tend to think or often understand Paul. It doesn't get to the whole picture because Paul immediately in this passage says, so that you might no longer be enslaved by sin. So he says, our old self was co-crucified that the body of sin might be done away with, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, how can that be the case if sin is simply equated with the body? You see? Sin seems to be something other here, something distinct from human beings that holds them captive. Um, there's, and then later, Paul says, let not sin rule over your mortal bodies. Mortal bodies is a different construction there. It's very clear. It seems to be an implicit distinction between sin and physical mortal bodies. There's something other that rules over it, that holds captive 
that is personified in this way. So perhaps a better understanding is that the body of sin means the body as it belongs to sin, as it is dominated by sin. This is Paul's language, as it is held captive by sin, as it is ruled by sin. Sin is something other, an external relational matrix perhaps, an external systemic power, perhaps a cosmic power, certainly something external to the self and yet something that operates within the person in such a way that we act in accordance with it and become thereby complicit with it. But it's not, it cannot be reduced to an individual or even to human beings. That's crucial for understanding Paul's anthropology. But it can make us act in such a way that our bodily members become what Paul calls weapons of unrighteousness versus weapons of righteousness. So this is a participatory notion of the self and the body. The body is the way in which we're participating in realms that are destructive and ultimately lethal, but also necessary for life. That, you know, we need body to connect us to sources of life. And of course, ultimately for Paul, that is Christ and God in Christ. So then in Romans 7.24, the body of death seems to be parallel with the body of sin. It probably refers to the human body as gripped or determined by sin's reign and thereby death's power. Well, this is a reality all the time in hospital settings. Isn't it? I mean, it's a reality for all of us. It's just that some people get to see it more clearly than others. <laughs> some people get to ignore it. <laughs> some people are faced with it every day, which is, you know, a good thing. It may also mean that death is almost, for Paul, a cosmic power that holds humanity captive. It's like a lethal power. It's bigger than the self. Okay, so uh, finally, let me get to the next thing. We have this, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's from 1 Corinthians 12. But Paul is talking about the body of Christ as the church. So here we have not only the body of Christ as Christ's physical body, but the body of Christ as something that is corporate, communal, transcends time and space, but also is in time and space in very physical ways. Because when Paul talks about being members of the body of Christ, he's thinking of physical human beings as members of the body of Christ. And he's completely concerned with what happens in the exchange between members of the body of Christ, <laughs> uh, whether that's life-giving or deceptive or toxic. Um, he's con completely concerned about a relational matrix and its shaping of, the, of human flourishing or not. So bodies are the way in which we participate in God's activity in the world and the way in which we share with others in this larger body of Christ. So Christ became a physical human body in a divinely sustained solidarity with Christ. We're part of his, his body, which is now a risen body somehow. And, and um, we are in, therefore, members of one another in an exchange in which our identity is being co constituted all the time and reconstituted all the time. This has implications for things like dementia, for example. If the, the personhood is constituted in relationship, it doesn't exist purely in the past, 
It doesn't exist purely in memory. It exists in relational ties, even if the person might not be able to express that. So, to sum up, our physical bodies connect us to and enmesh us in larger social and spiritual bodies, for good and for ill. As bodies, we can't help belonging to things outside of ourselves, which we also internalize. Much as, much as we may want to put up a sign that says no trespassing, we are already occupied territory as far as Paul is concerned. That's a very shocking thought for um, contemporary modern thinkers in an American context, for sure, a Western context. For Paul, this is just, this is just a given. It's non-negotiable, but everything depends on our relational partners. Um, it's not about how things should be, or, but how things are. For Paul, there is not an autonomous self that can say, ooh, bad partnership, hmm, bad relationship, or hmm, I don't like this. I think I'll just declare my independence and step outside of it. We can't do that in and of ourselves. We need, rather, a relational alliance that comes into relationship with us that is stronger than toxic relational systems. An alliance with us against what Paul would call sin and death, but that has relational um, expressions, social expressions. And so the way Paul talks about this is through the crucifixion of Christ. In other words, the way talks, Paul talks about this is that God and Christ forms a relational alliance with the human race by becoming what we are and entering into our circumstances so completely unto death, becoming a slave, crucified. This is as low as you can go on the social ladder in the Roman Empire. And doing that so that we might then receive his life in an exchange. If we think of the self as generated in exchange, this is the exchange in which the self and personhood in relationship can begin to be remade from the ground up. It requires an outside intervention that is mediated um, through a relational exchange and experience. And so that's the first place. But of course, the way in which that has to, is going to take place is going to have to be through human relational exchange because we're human beings and we're bodily beings. And so we need it mediated in um, some human sense. And so God acts, in Paul's view, to remake <coughs> us, to reconstitute identity in a new social system through the corporate body of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. He talks a lot about this in, say, Romans 8, in uh, Romans 12, 13, 14, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, for example, but elsewhere in 1 Corinthians as well, um, this notion that we are can be reconstituted. There's some characteristics of this um, that we would glean from Paul's letters, the quality of relationship, um, in which uh, human bodies, the relationships are characterized by grace, charis, that means gift, 
uh, in the Roman ancient context. Gift that is not um, mediated by achievement, by given to the that is given to those who are not worthy or fitting recipients, not good bets. There's a lot of gift giving in the Roman Empire. But it's always to people who could, you know, would be good bets. You don't give to someone that can't give back eventually or is sort of morally questionable and all that. But uh, for Paul, the gift of God in Christ is given to everyone without remainder. By mutual honor and respect rather than shame. And shame would be the um, uh, characteristic of what is at risk in a Roman context. But um, as far as Paul is concerned, it's mutual honor and respect. It is not conformity. It is not absorption of one into the other. There's differentiation within the relationships in the body of Christ. Paul talks about this in terms of gifts. And therefore, it is um, characterized by the social system by vocation rather than privilege. And that vocation is, again, given without regard to innate qualities or capacities of the person. Vocation is given because the Holy Spirit gives vocation in terms of the various gifts within the community. Um, and that means that everybody, without regard to any innate capacities, is given vocation. So all of these, this has a lot of implications then for um, Paul's body language and what that might mean, and I think we could brainstorm in a lot of directions. I'm just going to sum up a few of the implications and then a few ideas and then ask you to all discuss on some implications of this picture of bodyhood, body embodiment, um, for healthcare. The first thing is that just that this is incredibly affirming of the body. It could not be more affirming of all bodies, not just upper class, elite male bodies, which is the kind of body that was affirmed in Paul's context in uh, Greco-Roman culture. Elite male bodies were the norm. They were the ideal. Everything else was a little bit uh, defective, shall we say. <laughs> The California bodies is what I call these. Um, <laughs> I can say that because I grew up in California. Um, toned and fit. In the ancient world as well, um, uh, the speaker, the famous orator, the preacher should have a great body. <laughs> Just like now, <laughs> they should have great bodies. You know, I mean, it's the same thing. Christ's body was tortured and hung on a cross and exposed and shamed. It epitomized shame, deformity, uh, distortion, all of that. And Paul's body did too, because Paul had been tortured, and he often talks about his body. He talks about his body as an embarrassment, as something that was ugly to look at, as, um, not, uh, as really low down on the social scale, and then he turns around and says, in my body I proclaim Christ. My body is a testimony to Christ, a billboard for Jesus. Uh, he says that frequently. He says um, that in my body the death of Jesus might be known, that the life of Jesus might also be known in my body. 
So the body becomes a, a site of revelation for Paul. And again, it's not the typical body. It's not the perfect body. It's not the, um, the uh, ideal body. It's the body as it is. I think that's really quite wonderful. I don't know if any of you know about this project. <coughs> is this from a video? It was, it was a project done in Germany in which people who had various kinds of physical deformities were measured. And, and the, the video shows all this happening so that mannequins could be made of their bodies. And th I, I, just, I just think it's really beautiful. And then what they did, I love this, is they, um, if we had time I'd show the video, but they took these mannequins and they put them in the store windows of big fancy department stores. And they took out the perfect body mannequins and they put in, all dressed in the fancy clothes, these mannequins in the shop windows, the displays, um, including one in a wheelchair. And then they uh, surreptitiously videoed people looking at the store windows. It's really wonderful. And there is... Did they have to form consent for all that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think the, ma the people who... <laughs> yeah, I know. There's some beautiful ones of, um, of the people themselves seeing themselves dressed in beautiful clothes in the windows. And then there's other, you know, um, able-bodied people who either look and look away, are horrified, are embarrassed, are fascinated. It's really quite wonderful. I think that it's just a lovely picture of how Paul can say something about his body. He must have had scars. I mean, he was stoned and he was whipped. He must have been a real test to look at. And he, he talks often about himself as, as kind of the scum of the earth, carrying in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Well, <clears throat> to me, this is a lovely picture of kind of what's the heart of Paul's body language. So <clears throat> we might, I'll leave that up there and um, just ask a few questions for, and, and love to hear you brainstorm about how some possible implications of this picture of as bodies as mediating connection, as modes of, of belonging and participation, as thereby vulnerable, as, um, as um, a holistic person of the body such that the self cannot be disentangled from the body and the body cannot be disentangled from its, its environment its relational environment, and also its physical environment. We know a lot about this that we didn't used to know now. You know, everything from lead poisoning <laughs> to the way um, social, to toxic social environments have long-term effects on the physical well-being of children and, and adults, uh, to um, the way dysfunctional families have long-term physical effects and people, uh, as well as mental effects. All of this, I mean, we now swim in this, in this water, so to speak. Um, also, that the, um, the goal of healthcare might not be perfect bodies, but, but relationally functioning systems of care and interdependence. It really puts a question mark I think, over what I think is often seen as a goal 
and a value in the medical system, which is isolated autonomies, autonomy, self-motility. Maybe that isn't always the case, and maybe it's not a failure. Maybe, in fact, there are other ways to think about human flourishing in terms of relationality, in terms of connection, in terms of values that make it possible to think about healthcare goals in the face of the inevitability of death and dealing with terminal illness and so forth. So I'm just putting this forward. Um, if we think in terms of interdependence and relationality, if we think in terms of um, bodily connection, if we think in terms of holistic understandings of the body, the body and the person, and the person embedded in its the larger context means, I mean, it has a lot to do with public health, for example, and, you know, healthcare systems. That also means that um, healthcare delivery really does take a village, um, and it tends to get partitioned and, and specialized. And so um, it really does push towards ways health, some aspects of healthcare delivery are pushing in terms of team approaches. Um, and also I think it might even push towards the difference hope makes eschatologically. Yeah, um, certainly from a Christian perspective, and certainly from Paul's perspective. The self that persists is being pulled into the future more than determined by the past. And that's really interesting, too. Um, that's interesting in lots of ways. So those are a few thoughts. Um, and we have about 20 minutes left, I think, for discussion. So any questions first? And I just want to open it up. Questions or comments? I mean, you all can talk a lot. Well, I feed my body with some of this food. Well, the issue of existing and being, in itself being a relation, my own view is that even if someone, well, for example, a few weeks ago we had a talk on autism, and mm -hmm. we were talking about uh, people who were severely autistic, mm -hmm. and um, the discussion I think was good. Um, but my point was that even if someone is severely autistic and cannot apparently uh, communicate and be social, that that they still have value and perhaps even um, just being there is communication and perhaps uh, their value or maybe even the very reason that they're on the earth is for the benefit of someone else. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And they represent someone else's task. Um, maybe even their formation in some kind of way. Um, and so what I'm gathering from what you have said so far is that if everyone has vocation, then everyone communicates in some way because mm -hmm. everyone is relational. Mm -hmm. no. Yeah. Yeah. John Swinton, as many of you probably know, has, I think, written about, about that, especially eloquently. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, 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 no, but 
then we get into theological discussions because um, there is even a school of thought um, that advances the notion that if you're not relational and you are apparently don't have the ability to love, then can you be saved? Mm, that's problematic. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about that more, but theologically, that's a problem. Yeah. It's a problem with individualistic notions of the self. Yeah, and, and, and my position on that is only that the issue is how the individual relates to God or God relates to the individual. And it's not just whether, for example, I as a person can relate to my brother or, or my sister or anyone in the world. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Because it seems like he uses flesh in like, yeah. extremely negative ways. Yes. And yeah. could you like, talk about how that really <coughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. It's really helpful, I think, to clarify those two things. Um, the Greek word for flesh is sarks. And Paul seems to use it um, sometimes, sometimes to refer to physical, you know, like my flesh. But more often, to refer to, well, one way I think about this as um, a realm of existence that we bodily partake in that is under the power of sin. That's really Paul's way of speaking. So he can use the language of sarks or flesh to say, um, in the flesh, being in the flesh, which might simply mean living in the body. I think more often it means as living in the body, we're also connected to a realm of existence that is not fully redeemed, shall we say, or that's passing away, uh, that is not, um, yeah. So it has this relational content, context, context, connotation, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, but in a negative sense. Uh, sometimes it seems to mean kinship, my, my, um, uh, my kinsfolk according to the flesh, he says at the beginning of Romans 9. That means his kinsfolk. That's just all it means. I mean, um, sometimes it seems to mean um, he uses the term a lot in Galatians and he's talking about circumcised flesh. <laughs> he's talking about an embodied, an embodied um, existence that um, is at best merely human and at worst is subject to anti-God powers, which would be sin and death. Sin and death are, for Paul, almost cosmic powers. They are larger than the body and larger than the soul. That's a little bit about flesh. So, yeah, I, you want to come back on that? Yeah, so does, does that add, then, like, a negative connotation when you think about human bodies or, like, yeah? Yeah, sure. I try to get at the, that by t saying that the body is a mode of participation. And therefore, um, well, here, let me just kind of give a, all right. So we're born, little babies. <laughs> Studies show that babies uh, within an hour of birth sometimes will imitate faces. 
There's a lot of studies of this that's just really amazing because they don't know they have faces, and yet they will imitate faces. <laughs> you know, that's why I talk about um, some some psychologists would talk about the baby seeing itself mirrored back in the mother's eyes, for example, so we know we exist. Um, so there's this exchange, and in imitation, we are have um, sort of an exchange going on, almost neurologically. Okay. So if that's the case, we are so, um, so constituted that from birth, and even before birth, in the mother's womb, we are taking in what is external to us. Well, we're never, nobody's born into a perfect world. We're born into a world, this is a way of thinking about original sin that's like not tied into sex per se, but it is tied to embodiment, and yet, and yet bodies are not intrinsically bad, Okay. We are born into a world that we take into ourselves from the very beginning. You know, think of fetal alcohol syndrome. But even without that, I mean, we are, we are internalizing and we externalize, and that happens. And in that exchange, we cannot escape being sinners. We cannot escape because our bodies are interacting with a world that is in Paul's terms, under the power of sin. Uh, it is a world that has gone wrong. And we are, um, insofar as we're agents, we've become complicit in that. And our bodies become what Paul would call weapons of unrighteousness. As bodily beings, we can't help being entangled. And so body and flesh in that sense go together. That said, it is as bodies that we are also in Christ and as bodies that we find Christ dwelling in and among us and between us in our interchange with one another. And so body per se is not bad, but as bodies we are, get entangled. And, and I think in this life we're always kind of entangled. <laughs> Does that make some sense? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's trying to kind of get that idea across. Yeah. Yeah. Other ideas, thoughts? Yeah. This is mostly a question and an observation, um, but I'm just struck by how this understanding, this Pauline notion of a body, how subversive it is, or just how sort of oppositional it is to that of medicine, and I think specifically in Stuart Rose first, that of efficiency. Um, this, mm. this notion of a body seems much less conducive to mm. uh, sort of purposes of definition and measurement, epidemiology, Mm -hmm. which are all kind of so foundational to medicine and mm -hmm. evidence-based medicine and generalization. I mean, it, it, it's generalizing is sort of founded on the notion of a disembedded body that can be, you know, um, extrapolated to other bodies. And the notion of Paul is the body is one porous and interacting and being changed by others and two sort of defined, easy, self-contained notions just pre pre presents a real challenge to just sort of the epistemology of medicine and how to use the body. And second, I think, um, yeah, his approach to illness, disease, and suffering also potentially provides a real frustration to medicine, which is so bent on fixing problems, and on the general assumption that scars and brokenness and weakness are bad and things that need to be fixed. And it relies on that, I mean, from early economic standpoint with the assumption that patients who are sick, who are hurt, to, to 
even to the point of um, just aesthetic modification, are going to become consumers and participants on this collective idea of sickness and illness, or even physical deformities or deficiencies as being bad. So I think it's just worth it to name like how starkly this um, argues against as sort of like Bedouin practitioners were taught to think about the body. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any answers to that. It's really important to name. Um, and I'd love to hear more thoughts from around the table about that. I mean, one of the, one of the dangers um, is that you say, well, is there, any, is there any warrant here for alleviating pain, for example? Sure, yeah. You know, um, and is there, uh, I mean, I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that is it you know what's the warrant for healing here and of course one warrant for healing is is that um, uh, pain actually is incredibly isolating <laughs> pain consumes uh, pain makes it very very difficult to be connected to others and so pain gets in the way of flourishing in in this sense Romans 12 it all has to do with the transformation yeah, great. of the mind has to do with participation in vocation in the body. That's how I read the whole thing. And then, and then didn't that word, you know, see rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those yeah. who mourn. And yeah. Let your gentleness be evidence. So there's this, there's this sort of binding up the wounds of the body. Yeah. And did you also see in 1 Corinthians 12? That yeah, that would, right. That, would, that, that helps. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That does help. In which case, then, the vocation of the, of the doctor is a part of the location of the body in that sense. I mean, I, there's a lot more that could be said here, uh, particularly this, what you're also talking about, the kind of the epistemology of, of the body as, as partitioned, as discrete, as generalizable, and so forth. I'd love to hear from the rest of you. Yeah. Susan, to pick up on that, two, the one that just asked you if you think there are any connections that you would draw here between to two things, two practices of medicine Mm-hmm. One is the, the aesthetic, sort of yeah. cosmetic surgery. Um, and the other is more recent, which is the, the use of medicine as part of what's called gender transition. Mm -hmm. So how medicine is used to respond to the experience of gender dysphoria. You want some reflections on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, we can always just delete from this little thing right here. <laughs> um, on the cosmetic, uh, I think it's it's difficult. I think I think for Paul that would be nonsensical. It would not be nonsensical for his context at all, because. Um, I mean, had it been possible for people to uh, make themselves more attractive, there, there would have been, I think, a real interest in that, in, in a culture that obsessed about particularly elite male bodies. Um, there was the uh, surgery that was done on Jewish men who wanted to hide the marks of circumcision so that they could go exercise. This is true. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... Um, so they could go exercise naked in the gym. I mean, this is, this is just Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture. People exercised naked and, and competed naked, and um, Jews who wanted to fit in would do that. So that is probably the original cosmetic surgery. 
right there. Um, but Paul, uh, Paul boasts of his scars and um, his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. I'm, I'm, I have theories about that, but no, we don't really know. Um, so I don't think it makes a lot of sense to him. Now, that said, the way in which I think of things like cleft palates in some cultures where uh, a cleft palate means people will starve to death. You know, it means uh, they will, children will be excluded from the community. And, I mean, there are situations where, where um, cosmetic surgery, it's not simply about, you know, making yourself more beautiful according to some cultural norm, but survival and inclusion in the community. <coughs> and in that case, it's hard for me to see how certainly the logic I'm tracing out here would not support that kind of surgery. But I think for Paul, the idea that you know you have surgery to make your eyes more beautiful or whatever is, is uh, I don't think he would have a way to make sense of that. <laughs> yeah, and so that's, that's one question. The question of the gender transition surgery, there's such a much larger set of issues around the way we even conceptualize of gender and identity in contemporary terms versus in ancient terms that's in play here, that makes it complicated. Because in the ancient world, they did not conceptualize of gender as much in biological terms as in passive and active roles in sex. <laughs> so they will speak about uh, uh, homosexual activity in terms of those who are in the passive role are in the women's role, and those in the active role are in the man's role. And so there's, there seems to be more of a continuum of gender identity in the ancient world than there is in certainly the modern West. And so it complicates the picture about gender transition surgery, it, because I think I think in the ancient world, and perhaps in some cultures around the world, uh, uh, there, would be, there can be more fluidity and expression of one's identity than in the strictures of the way, way male identity and female identity get, get socially constructed in our culture that create pressure for transgender um, uh, surgery. And so... I don't know all the answers to that, but I think there's a lot more to be thought about than simply changing the body. It's changing the conceptualization of gender identity. Um, I mean, I've been in South Sudan. That's another place for interesting stories. And in South Sudan, where they, they don't, it would be really bizarre to them to think of transgender surgery, but men routinely hold hands. I mean, it's, they just routinely hold hands. You see this all the time. And I've been walking along with these tall young men who suddenly their fingers are twined in mine, or my husband has been walking along, suddenly their fingers are twined together, and they're very, very tight with each other. And this is not seen as a gender transgressive thing at all. It's just, it's just their, their way of expression is different. That's not to say that completely explains everything, but it's just a, a, maybe we need reframing in some ways about the ways we think. That's not a full answer, I know. 
Yeah. All right. Okay, well, anybody else want to follow that doozy of a question or something? <laughs> or make comments? I, um, I get the impression that, that, that Pogel's attitude was that the body is something that we struggle in, that we, that we experience suffering in, um, particularly for Christ. And um, he was a person who seemed um, completely dedicated and accepting of the pain and suffering that he experienced in the body. And I think that he expected um, all Christians to be that way. Um, and so I think that he would have rejected both of those scenarios. I don't think that he would have accepted uh, the notion of um, plastic surgery or um, change of change. I don't think, there's a couple things that are tricky. It's very easy to go from the way in which Paul talks about carrying the death of Jesus in his body into saying that pain and suffering are goods in and of themselves. And that's always the slippery slope. I don't think Paul thinks pain and suffering are goods in and of themselves. Um, and, and that's really crucial for <laughs> people in your field. I really don't. Um, I, I think, and that's, you know, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, I think are helpful here. The, the bearing of one another's burdens, the alleviation of one another's pains, the wanting human flourishing. I think what Paul experienced was that, um, that in, his, um, in his vocation, he came into inevitable conflict with a world where he was opposed. And, um, and as a result, there was suffering that he experienced and that he didn't run away from. But that is different. And, and he narrates that in terms of, of a unity with Christ. But that's different than saying pain and suffering, you know, people ought to suffer. Oh, you're suffering. Oh, that's good. You know, it's different than that. So I just want to be careful about that line. Well, that part I'm clear on because he even healed, for example. Um, But in terms of for the cause of Christ, then your body is what we suffer in. We suffer in our bodies. We are not um, ever ever distinct from our bodies. We never, we we are embodied even in resurrection. That's, uh, we, it's not like there's a self that gets, escapes the body. Never. The whole self dies, the, and the whole bodily self is resurrected. Okay. Well, I think that's Thank the time. Thank you, Dr. Eastman. I found that book incredibly illuminative and also raising all kinds of interesting and important questions. So I couldn't imagine two greater goods to come from a talk. So thank you. Um, thank you. Okay, great. Well, see you in two weeks, and please let's thank again, Dr. Eastman. Thank you. Thank you.